And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast at the end of a truly shocking and dramatic week in the NBA that began two days ago, really, when Robert Sarver announced in a very Robert Sarvery way that he is going to sell the Phoenix Suns and the Phoenix Mercury after the NBA initially banned him for a year and fined him $10 million bucks because of an investigative report by an outside law firm that found what we'll call now, for now, broad workplace misconduct. That report, as you surely know, corroborated much of, if not all of, Baxter Holmes' story for ESPN in November 2021. Baxter interviewed dozens and dozens and dozens of current and former Suns staff members who revealed to him just how toxic the Suns and Mercury internal culture had become under Sarver and things that Sarver himself, as the boss and the tone setter of that culture, said and did. Some of which included, but certainly not inclusive of, uh, using racial slurs, commenting on the bodies of female staffers, and all sorts of potential incidents of gender discrimination that when Baxter and I ran them by, several high-powered attorneys, almost a half dozen of them, they all agreed that if not for statute of limitation issues, which apply in maybe not all the cases, that's unclear, but certainly a lot of them, um, a good plaintiff's attorney, boy, oh boy, could they put together a nice lawsuit against Robert Sarver for hostile work environment, gender discrimination, on and on and on in, in that realm for some of the things that he has said about and to female employees. And again, the statute of limitations thing is real and would probably have limited those, but that was a unanimous opinion of those attorneys. And so Robert Sarver is now going to sell the team. And I think that this can be summed up, this this maneuver, this news, in two PR statements, which I rarely cite, but I think this is perfect. The first was from Adam Silver. said, this is the whole statement. I fully support the decision by Robert Sarver to sell the Phoenix Suns and Mercury. This is the right next step for the organization and community. End statement. That's the whole thing. I think that's the shortest press release Adam Silver has ever sent out. That is, let's be clear, a very polite way of saying good riddance or something more profane than that, if you wish. That said, I don't really buy this idea that Adam Silver was playing chess, not checkers, when he initially announced a one-year ban for Robert Sarver, a ban that I and many others thought was too light, considering what was in that report. And I said that right away on TV that day, and I repeated it here in talking with Baxter last week about what those attorneys had told us, digging deeper into the report. It was too light. Forget the Sterling comparison for now. That was that was not enough. And I don't think that, you know, there was this idea that in in outlining that penalty and his sort of Adam Silver sort of, let's say, tepid and sometimes confusing justification of it at his press conference that was that was widely panned, that he was playing chess, not checkers, that, you know, he knew he foresaw exactly what was going to happen, that people were going to be mad at him, mad at the penalty, mad at Sarver, and the collective outrage was going to push this particular outcome of Robert Sarver selling the team, which is exactly what he wanted. I don't necessarily buy that because, A, the penalty was up to Adam Silver, and I think it was too short and too limited. B, it's not really playing chess when you only have, because of whatever limitations are upon you, and I'm talking here about what maybe the other 29 owners would have wanted, what would have actually been required to vote uh, Robert Sarver out of the league. Because of those limitations, you only really have one move and you make it. It's this sort of weakish middle ground that is widely criticized. And then you just sort of leave it 
to public opinion to take over and hope that it leads in the direction that it did. And just because it led there, I don't necessarily think that's like some, oh my gosh, reaffirmation, vindication of everything Adam Silver was doing all along. Didn't think the penalty was enough. That's life. We move on. Sarver's statement uh, includes lots of goodies in it. Um, He starts by saying words that I deeply regret now overshadow nearly two decades of building organizations that brought people together and strengthened the Phoenix arena and blah, blah, blah. Then he goes on to say, but in our current unforgiving climate, it has become painfully clear that is no longer possible, that that being that I can sort of make amends and come back to the team, that whatever good I have done or could still do is outweighed by things I have said in the past. For those reasons, I'm beginning the process of seeking buyers for the Suns and Mercury. Everyone read that and was like, boy, oh boy, he's whining about cancel culture and all of that. And I guess, I guess that he is. And it's very notable, I think, in Sarvery that he is. But I focused on on other things in in that statement. His repeated use of first words, words that I regret, all these actions that I've done, all the good I have done has outweighed by things I have said. He's very intentionally sort of minimizing what he did is just words, just stuff I said out into the air. Like we all say stuff, we all do stuff, we all we all put words on the air, we tell jokes and we, we say bad remarks and it's all part of his sort of the, the initial defense, if that is the right way to put it, that you heard for Robert Sarver, for, for people that sympathize with him a little bit. Well, you know, he's just sort of an awkward guy who's trying to be one of the boys and he has a sophomoric sense of humor and he just doesn't get it and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's saying, look at all I've done. I I've, I've have a great record of hiring minorities. I, I donated to this nonprofit and that nonprofit. And these are just words. These are just words that I said. The reality, though, is that he's not just one of the boys. He's the boss. You can't, no one, the boss or anyone else, the N-word is out. You can't say it, you can't say it under any circumstances. You can't say it just because you're repeating what somebody else said. And by the way, we're, we're just sort of taking his word for it that he was repeating what somebody else said in all those cases. And when you're the boss, when you say words to female employees like you're pregnant, this could disadvantage your career within my organization. When you say words to female employees why are all the women crying here all the time? Why do these all these women in my in my organization cry all the time? When you say words to female employees about their bodies, about that woman's body being good and that woman's body being not as good, about blah blah blah, those words it from a position of power like he has, a position from which he can determine people's careers and futures, a position of authority where people are looking to him for leadership and approval, those words are not just really words coming from him. They're almost weapons. They're almost they're cl- they're as close as words can be to actions. They create a, a climate of of fear, unpleasantness, um, and of frankly discrimination. One lawyer put it to me: of you know those comments taken collectively indicate that perhaps a claim could be made that Robert Sarver thinks women are less than, less than men, less than was the phrase that was used. And that alone could be grounds for some sort of gender discrimination lawsuit. When you tell someone who's pregnant, well, this pregnancy, you're not going to be able to put on this event that you've been planning, you know, your, your career is not going to be the same. Those aren't just words. Those are doing harm to the people on the receiving end of them, both because of what the words are and because of who is saying them, a person in power saying them, to someone who he has power over based on just the realities of employment. And even amid all this, 
everyone told me from day one of Baxter's story coming out, even before, honestly, and even in the wake of the investigative report, this dude is so stubborn, he's never going to sell a team. He's going to ride it out. He doesn't care about public opinion or he's, he's, he's stubborn enough to sort of ignore it, push it aside and prove that, you know, I can out tough it. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep owning the team and the team itself last year, the Phoenix Suns, by the way, trying to win a championship decided last season, 2021, 22, we're going to address it, address it head on. Monty Williams addressed it. The players addressed it. Then we're going to put it aside because we don't play for Robert Sarver. We're not going to, we're not going to call for further action. We're not going to boycott. We're not going to protest. We're going to shove it aside and play. And obviously, they didn't win the championship. They lost in Game 7 against the Mavs. And I think that there was a chance that that same outcome could have happened again, that the team could have approached it that way, that the noise would have faded, and Robert Sarver would have just sort of rode it out, ran out the clock on outrage, and kept the team. And that didn't happen, and it didn't happen for a lot of reasons. Number one... The players and the powerful ones began to speak up. LeBron, of course, tweeted, there's no place for that in our league. The Players Association said directly, we want him out, period. And Chris Paul, you know, Chris Paul is the star of the Suns. Didn't just, he, he could have tweeted something that was just sort of a generic disapproval of Robert Sarver, generic disapproval of what was in the report. He did do that, but then he also tweeted, the sanctions fell short. Basically, the sanctions were not enough. And I thought that precision, that was effective in terms of just, it's not just generic. I'm being precise. I'm arguing for something further. I don't know if the players would have done anything further. I don't know. I I don't think there was a plan from what I've heard for any sort of boycott or protest. I don't know what they might have called for had they answered this question on Media Day, had Monty Williams, one of the great statesmen of the NBA, answered this question on Media Day about what Robert Sarver should do, what the penalty should have been. I don't. Maybe they would have called for uh, harsher penalties, as Chris Paul did in that tweet, and that would have certainly had an effect too. I don't know that there was there was like a, a big dramatic protest coming, but those tweets matter. Draymond saying, "Hey, how about you guys vote? You guys have the power to vote. Let's see who stands with Robert Sarver and who doesn't. How about you owners vote? Let's see it." And then, of course, the sponsors began to pull out PayPal, most notably among them. And when the money comes, it just becomes a tide of public opinion, financial harm that Robert Sarver decided, probably, I'm sure, pushed behind closed doors by both the league office and the other governors. um, Let's just get out. Let's just get out. And, And it was put to me over and over again by people close to the team. He just can't come back in a year. Like everything's normal. So he's not going to come. He's not going to come back in a year. He's going to sell the team. And guess what? He's going to make a lot of money. He bought the team a long time ago for a valuation now that looks like peanuts. It's going to sell for a gigantic amount of money. He's going to cash out just like Shelly Sterling cashed out with the Clippers. Shelly Sterling, who was frankly miscast as some sort of calculating uh, hero is too strong of a word, but protagonist, I guess, uh, when really she was. I mean, clearly complicit with everything that Donald Sterling had been doing in terms of housing and discrimination and on and on all along. She made a lot of money. She got a court courtside seat. That's the price of getting these people out of the league is that they get a windfall. That's the deal. The benefit, I think, to the league is A, he's out. B, the Suns, the players, the people we come to watch, the people who we enjoy watching, interacting with, the people who make the league. The Phoenix Suns players get to have a normal season. They get to pursue their goal of winning a championship 
pursue their goal of advancing even deeper into the playoffs, of, of finishing what they started two years ago. I don't think they're going to do that. They're not even my favorite to get out of the West, but that's neither here nor there. They get to have a normal season instead of answering questions about this all the time, instead of being asked, why are you not doing more? Why are you not boycotting? Why are you not calling for this and that? They get to have a normal season, and they frankly deserve that. And to put that burden on the players was always unfair. To put that burden on players who uh, did not ask for any of this, have only 30 places where they can work over a finite period of time, and are not nearly, with a few exceptions, as financially strong and powerful as the, as the owners, to put that burden on them and say, you know what, you do it, you get them out of the league, you protest, you risk something to do that, that was never going to be fair. And they, get, and they get to have a normal season. That's good. And now the Suns. Boy, Bill Simmons, when I worked with him at Grantland, we used to have a running gag occasionally. We just imagine. Imagine we knew a billionaire. We just wanted to buy a basketball team, any team, and would just let us run it. Of course, we would run it into the ground. We'd be awful. Sorry, Bill, but I think we would be awful as general managers, co-general managers. Maybe I'd be the assistant to the traveling secretary. I don't know. We always thought if we could pick one, what would it be? And it was instant. Phoenix. Phoenix. Phoenix, the sleeping giant of the NBA. Phoenix, despite Robert Sarver's sometimes wobbly stewardship, his ducking of the luxury tax, go look up the Kurt Thomas trade from 2006 when a team that was still in title contention going forward dumped draft picks to cut its payroll. That despite that has actually a pretty strong record of success. Has appeared in the finals. Steve Nash led an iconic seven seconds or less team. Good in the 80s, good in the 90s, good in the 70s. Just a good, good franchise. And now someone is going to buy that team, and they're going to be a free agent draw. They're going to make a lot of money. It's going to be a really appealing franchise. And maybe, maybe the Suns will get, and their fans will get the kind of team that they really deserve. And it's already a great team on the court. But that's where we are with Robert Sarver. That is the end of that until, of course, we figure out who he's going to sell to and for how much. But that process is going to unfold. And for more on workplace power dynamics, we're going to bring in Ramona Shelburne now to talk about um, the second shocking story from this week, and that involves Ime Odoka of the Boston Celtics. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay, full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. And with a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP 
and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Ramona, how are you? Good. How are you, Zach? Oh, just living the dream. Um, Let's talk about Ime Udoka because we're talking about workplace power dynamics, and so that's a natural transition to Ime Udoka. Um, We're recording this at almost 4 p.m. Pacific. The Celtics have not yet announced anything uh, regarding Ime Udoka's punishment for – having what is described as consensual a consensual intimate relationship with a female staffer. Woj broke the news last night. Woj has been reporting all day that a one-year suspension is about to uh, befall Ime Udoka. And I guess where you start is the question on everyone's mind is Robert Sarver got banned by the NBA for one year before, as I just said, public opinion coaxed him into getting the hell out of here uh, and making a a, a whole lot of money in the process. Um, he got banned for one year for all the stuff that we've talked about all week, just endless 18 years worth of stuff, mm-hmm. bad stuff. Why is Ime Udoka getting the same in terms of time penalty for a consensual, a consensual uh, a dalliance or whatever you want to call it with, with a female staffer? What is your take on that question? Yeah, it's um it's it's a really interesting timing and equivalency that has been uh set up and and it I think my first reaction is well there's two different people doing the punishing and they have two different sets of rules that are being enforced here, right? So the Celtics have workplace standards. They have things that are outlined in their corporate bylaws. Anybody who works for them has uh corporate bylaws just the same way we would at ESPN, right? Um, you know, it's, uh, the same way we would at, um, at, at any, any place. If you, if you have a relationship with a subordinate, generally you have to, uh, declare it and people need to be out in the open about it. Um, sometimes they actually move you into different departments if that's the case, um, because of the types of issues that happen with power dynamics in terms of, you know, you're the head coach of the team and the the person you're having an affair with or having a a relationship with um, is in a position where they may not feel like they can speak up or they, what if the relationship ends and it changes the dynamic, there's all sorts of things that go into this. Um, So the Celtics have their own corporate standards and without knowing all of the details of this relationship or what led to this. And I know you and I have probably heard a lot of stories act right behind the scenes. And I don't think it's fair to anybody yeah. involved here to speculate on this until we know more. Yeah. What happened? Until- uh, what happened on Twitter? Um, whatever yeah. last night, I think Wednesday, yeah. night, whatever night this was, was disgusting. Ooh. I'm not even going right. to name the right. names. It was disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just think it's, you know, and some people, some of my female colleagues have pointed out how, how unfair it is to all the female employees in Boston right now who are being speculated about, right? Whose names get thrown oh, out there it's, like that. It's disgusting. It's gross. It's gross, right? Um, and uh, and there's a, there's just a reason why we have kind of uh, why corporations have those type of rules. Um, so clearly, you know, whatever happened here is being investigated and thought of in a way that is, um, you know, really serious. Now, what happened with Robert Sarver was a completely separate thing that happened to that happened to occur in the same time frame 
And we can debate whether the one-year punishment was enough. A lot of people have disagreed with that, most notably LeBron James, Chris Paul, Draymond Green, et cetera. I know you did on the air, Herc, um, a lot of a lot of folks. And and the result of it, though, is that he's selling the team. And so the punishment was sort of a um, starting a process that that you know that started that escalated public opinion. But Adam Silver's using the bylaws of the NBA, which are different than the bylaws of the Phoenix Suns or the Boston Celtics. And when you talk about banning somebody as an owner, um, if you ban him for one year, you know, banning him, what's the difference between one year and two years or banning for life like Donald Sterling? So they maybe don't go to a game in 30 years. Like, you know, you don't get to have any association with the league for 30 years. It's just a different corporate structure and a different set of events. But I, 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 I don't think it doesn't sit well, right? That Sarver got the same suspension. Well, a, a couple of things. Number one, the, number one, you're right that I and many of our colleagues immediately in reacting to the Sarver report and the Sarver uh, ban for, of one year said that's not sufficient. That's too light of a punishment. So mm-hmm. if you're making the uh, why are the equivalent punishments, why are they equivalent? Well, it's like some of us were saying, the first one wasn't wasn't enough anyway. Yep. So that's number one. Number two, I mean, you you nailed it. First of all, let's zoom way out. This is a first and foremost a human story where a family story where people are going to suffer and emotional damage and wreckage could end up being yeah. severe for lots of different people. We don't exactly know who or where or what or why. And I think it's important to remember that, especially in light of what happened last night on Twitter. Like these are human beings; they're people. Like it's 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 going to be wrenching, uh, one way or another, for some of them. Um, on Ime, we don't know for sure everything that happened, where, when, yep. how, yep. who. Um, the the. You, you use the phrase power dynamics and, and I think people need to kind of slow down and think, okay, we, what exactly happened here? Yeah. What was, what were the workplace dynamics? What were the power dynamics? He's the head coach of the team. What position was she in? Um, and, and, uh, if, if, Upon discovery of this, the team concludes that the situation yep. that she was in is untenable. And as you said, someone has to get reassigned, yep. terminated, whatever. She has to get a different job. Um, yeah. is, is that is that fair to her that in that scenario she gets – that happens and, and Ime Odoko remains the coach of the team? What is her reaction? These are all things that you have to consider before yep. you start saying, well, this penalty seems harsh. And I think the Celtics are still coming to grips yep. – with exactly what happened, trying to figure out all the details and all the particulars and trying to figure out what the appropriate punishment is or the appropriate punishment just feels like the wrong word, the appropriate sanction or penalty or whatever. And I don't, you know, the one year suspension, I, I, that in a very murky, strange situation, that's where they've settled without knowing all the details. I, I kind of yep. defer to them and look, yep. who knows, like maybe it ends up being less than a year suspension. I don't think that will happen, but yep. who knows, who knows what the findings will end up being or whatever you want to put it or, or maybe Ime Udoka never coaches the Boston Celtics again, one way or another. And and we have seen people, Gerson Rosas for one, recover yep. from this kind of thing. But 
he recovered at a new organization. Um, mm-hmm. And and yep. maybe that's what has to happen with Ime. I, I just don't know, but I, I think I th- sometimes I don't know. We don't know all the details. It's it's not the answer anybody wants to hear. It's not the sexy answer yeah. to say on TV. But the power dynamic thing is a real thing. The guidelines, the HR stuff, that's a real thing. And he's in a position of enormous power. And I think the one-year penalty, or if that is indeed what happens, sort of reflects the complexities of that workplace dynamic. Yeah. I mean, there's there's all sorts of things that you can never imagine yourself in another person's shoes. But you have to play out a lot of hypotheticals, right? Um, just try to imagine, let's say you have a relationship and... Um, it's with the coach of the team and you, and you sort of feel, um, okay, this is going well for a while. You, it was a consensual relationship, but then, but then it's not. And, you know, you want to extricate yourself from this situation or you want to end the relationship. Can you end that and still keep your job? Can you end that and still feel, uh, if you keep your job that do your job in a normal way, you know, like, it's not always easy to do that. And so there's a reason why when people have workplace relationships, um, you're supposed to just come out in the open with it so that everybody's aware of it um, without getting into say, or speculation or whatever. Um, we've all probably heard behind the scenes, right? And, and or even on Twitter. And um, It sounds like there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a lot to this story that may come out, may not come out. Um, but it sounds like a lot of a lot of people are going to be affected in in pretty messy, ugly ways, right? And and I I don't know if we can all judge later on whether this is, you know, a fair enough punishment. But I know that Ime Udoka is one of the best young coaches in the league. That he took the Boston Celtics to the finals last year, and for them to consider such a massive penalty, um, or or you know, consequence for this it has to be pretty severe, right? It's obviously going to really change the dynamic of their team now. It's really going to change the dynamic of their season. Um, and so I, we just kind of have to trust the investigation and the people handling it at this point. But it is our job to, to find out more when we can't. So I hate, I know it's not always a satisfying answer, but sometimes as journalists, the best thing we can do is say, I don't know yet. Right? Based we'll on, find out more. Based on what we have found out, you know, you and I have been on the phone constantly the yeah. last 36 yep. hours or 24 hours or whatever it's been. My sense of time is now all yep. screwed up. Uh, I, I do think it's going to it's messy and it's yeah. ugly and it's it's going to be really sad. Whatever happens mm-hmm. is going to end up there's going to be damage here one way or another. Yep. And I, I think it's just sort of TBD what what ends up happening in terms of of a penalty. But I just think the rush to the rush to judge in any direction, the rush yep. to find her, out her name, the rush right. to condemn um uh condemn uh the equivalent penalties in terms of time between mm-hmm. Sarver and Coach Udoka. Yeah. I just I just think everyone needs to slow down and, yep. and just say what exactly happened here and we we know some of it. We yep. don't know all of it. We know as you said it's it's considered serious enough internally that a team that was the Vegas championship favorites um yeah. has had their season upended. And I know nobody wants to talk about basketball um when there are serious um, ethical and familial, whatever things going yep. on here, but Celtics are a basketball team, and they are probably going to lose their coach, uh, yep. who was a coach of the year candidate last year, who was a was part of yep. why they got to the finals, and they're going to elevate Joe Mazzulla, who's thirty four years old and untested in this kind of responsibility. 
Yeah. I think I think Joe Mazzulla is a, a good, smart young coach, but this is a whole different this is a whole different ballgame, let alone yep. taking over in these kind of circumstances. Um, and as you know, uh, just to be clear, by the way, for everybody, after Ramona, Tim Bontemps is going to come on, and we talked about the Sixers and yep. and and kind of previewed the East and talked about uh, uh, why I I think you know uh, the Sixers have more than a puncher's chance to win the East and why I'm picking Milwaukee to win the East ultimately and probably the championship and how mm-hmm. Boston had already had a couple of things go wrong, most notably Gallinari's knee Gallinari. injury. We record Tim and I recorded that yesterday, midday, before any of this happened. Just oh, to man. be clear, why are we talking about the Celtics and the Sixers and not mentioning that? That's why. Any any I mean I don't even know what else to say. It's just is there any it, it's all I'm just gonna wait and see and figure out and learn we've all learned facts, we've all made calls, we've all discovered some yeah. things. It's a very delicate situation. I, I'm just gonna wait and see and, and people will judge the penalty when when they're able to, I think, more fully. Yep. Any parting thoughts? Um you know, there's a there's a me that uh I was thinking about what happened in Minnesota a couple of years ago um with Gerson and you know I knew I know Gerson pretty well we dealt with him um pers- like personally at the time and, and professionally a lot and uh you know and I and I knew the woman involved and it was it was interesting um going through all that because I I knew all the families affected right and and this one I don't know all the families affected um but I I just you know the like as a, as a, you know, as a human being, like I can't help but go there. And so that's why I think, you know, you know, while it is a basketball story and we'll report on the basketball side of it and all this, it's like, uh, it was, that's the, that's the part where I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking through morally how, how we approach the story. still. it's hard. Um, it's hard, but it's, it's hard for us, but it's, it's real life, um, catastrophe for actual human beings who are at the center of it. Um, and, and frankly, you know, well, we'll, we'll talk more about that as the situation develops. Can we change yeah. gears and talk about something that's yeah. equal, equally sort of <laughs> yeah. not, not quite basketball related, but sort of more basketball related. You are a, um, you have written two big features on Ben Simmons in the last 18 months about his dispute with the Sixers, his trade request, what was going on, the stalemate, all of it, the fines, the fines that resulted in an arbitration, the outcome of which was a secret, basically. Um, ben Simmons broke his uh, broke his silence. It sounds like he's like broke his. Ben Simmons gave an interview to yeah. JJ Redick on JJ Redick's wonderful podcast, The Old Man and the Three. The first time he has spoken extensively about any of this since really after Game Seven against the Hawks two seasons ago, when he infamously passed up a dunk to dump the ball to Matisse Thybul, and we know what happened from there. Um, everyone's solution to JJ's pod because it's a rare opportunity to get a player who has just gone through this to talk for an hour about lots of different things. Um, I will just start open-ended with you as someone who's followed this really closely, who's talked to Ben a lot, talked to people close to Ben a lot. What was there something that really struck you or surprised you from what he said or, or, or a governing theme that you thought, wow, he really, he really hit that hard. Um, I'm first thought listening to it was, thank gosh, he finally talked like, like you can finally hear him. Right. Like I think so much of what has gone on with Ben for the last two years is that mental health is a really hard thing to talk about, especially when it's about yourself 
And when it's about somebody else, because you don't know what's going on inside somebody's head. And he, he really put it out there and he really, he really was, I thought he was pretty, pretty honest about the mental health challenges there. Um, and, it, you know, hearing him be so real about that, I, I, I wonder if, if he had been able to get himself there last year, either through an interview with somebody or just in front of the media or even with his teammates or people he was around. Um, how differently this whole thing would have played out and how differently people would have reacted to him. There was a part where JJ said to him, you know, would you have done something differently? And he goes, no, um, because it, all this has led me to where I am today and I feel really good. And I'm, you know, this journey that I've been on is, has been a good one for me. Um, so in that sense, you know, he's probably right. And he's gone on this journey, but it, it was a, a rough journey for him and his reputation has taken huge hit and and some of it fair some of it unfair i think um especially the stuff about his back injury really struck with me too because i i've been through a back injury myself um i had the literally the exact injury um herniated disc at l4 l5 i had the microdiscectomy surgery in february of 2021 and when he started when he started describing symptoms of I felt my leg drop. I felt the pain all the way down my leg and my foot. Um, when he started describing, uh, I was laying down on the ground. I couldn't sit. I couldn't sit in this chair. I couldn't do that. I'm like, yup, that's exactly what it is. He actually described something that was more severe than what I had. He said he had a foot drop, that he, his foot, um, that's indicative of really severe nerve damage. Like that's something when you have any kind of foot drop, your doctor says to you, we need to do the surgery immediately, or you'll have permanent nerve damage. Like that's a, some people don't come back from that. Um, I know somebody who's had a surgery where they had a foot job and they, their foot still doesn't work. And, and so like, when I heard that, I was like, Whoa, like, that's a, that's a really big revelation. And at the time, as we were all reporting on this, like, I don't think anybody knew a hundred percent if this was a real thing with his back, like a lot of what you would hear was, Oh, he's been checked out many times. Like he, He's still doing drills. He's still doing all the stuff. Um, you know, it's, is this, a, is this part of the mental health challenge? Um, I know a lot of questions on Ben and what he was really going through, but you don't go have back surgery because you're trying to get out of playing. Okay. Like nobody, no surgeon would cut into you. I mean, the guy who did the surgery, Dr. Watkins is one of the best back surgeons in the world. And he did the surgery. I mean, he's not going to go operate on a guy because He's getting out of, he doesn't want to play, right? He's operating on a guy because he needs back surgery. Like you don't do an unnecessary back surgery. That's a really serious thing. And so, I don't know. There was a part of me when I heard that, like I, I was I, I almost angry that, that he hadn't come out and said that before because he really got ripped for these, these physical issues. Um, and, and almost it was chalked up to mental health. And I was like, Shit, man, this was like clearly very real for you. Um, I'm glad he finally said something, but, uh, I'm a little disappointed it took this long. Uh, to your point, one of the, the happiest takeaway is he's healthy. He says he feels yep. great, says he's going to shoot threes this year. We'll see about that. Um, <laughs> and is excited to play with the Brooklyn Nets and ends it by saying, I think we can win the championship. Essentially. I think we're going to, we, we can contend for the championship and win the champions. I think he's just B champions. And for all the fun that I've made about the Nets, the Dunder Mifflin Brooklyn Nets who exist only on paper. <laughs> um, 
the team could be really freaking good. And I, I'm going to save the Nets preview for another time. We all know the players they signed, but they are built despite sort of a, a, a deficit of traditional big men. You put Royce O'Neal, Kevin Durant, Ben Simmons all on the floor with Joe Harris and Kyrie yeah. Irving. That's a potential switchy three really good big wing defenders and Joe Harris who's solid and an elite playmaker and Kyrie like there's a roadmap there for this team to be yep. awesome. I agree with Ben Simmons. What's but I don't want to talk about the Nets right now. Yeah. But there what struck me about it was how I don't know if this reinforced what you already thought. Yeah. How but how betrayed he felt by Doc Rivers specifically, Joel Embiid I think specifically. I mean JJ names them and said let's be honest, they threw you under the bus. Doc and Doc and Joel and how it almost seemed unrecoverable hearing Ben talk about it after Game 7, after Doc said, I can't answer that right now about whether Ben Simmons can be the point guard on a championship team, after Joel Embiid pointed to the thigh bowl passes where things went wrong, among other things. Joel talked for a long time. People zeroed in on that comment. He talked for a long time. Yeah. And then the, and then the summer where there's this controversy about did anyone visit him, did he disinvite them when they were going to come yeah. visit him. But I don't know. To me, it sounded like it just – it, it was over for him after that game. Yeah. And I felt that though, the, honestly, I felt that um, this is the function of it being a podcast and not an article. Okay. So when I wrote an article on this, I've, I've heard this side of the story before, obviously when I reported on it, I think it's reflected in all the stories I've written um, and the way Ben felt. Um, but in the stories I wrote, there's also the, you know, there's, there's a balance to it. Um, there's a, there's a, there's, there's other things that were going on during that playoff series during his season there that JJ didn't necessarily bring up. And that's not, that's not on JJ. He's doing a podcast. He's doing an interview. And, he's and, he, and, he, and by the way, JJ called him out and said, look, yeah, man, that pass, that pass to the tie looks bad, dude. He said, that looks, yeah. it looks bad. It's not great. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Ben goes, yeah, it looks horrible. When you slow it down, it looks horrible. I should have just dunked it. Should have punched it. Should have punched it. Yeah. Should have punched it. And, and, uh, there was this part where, you know, a part of me was saying, well, it wasn't just one play. Okay. So we, um, you know, we, we are doing, um, we're forgetting what happened that whole series. Okay. He was missing free throws. Remember there was, he wasn't shooting. Um, there was a lot of, there was a lot that led up to that. There was the, um, in one of the stories I wrote last year, there was the, the, the weird exposure to the COVID weird exposure to COVID. And then, you before know, before game seven, before, before games, game before the Hawks game. Right. Um, and so there was a lot that went into it that, you know, JJ didn't go point by point by point with, the, with all those things. I thought he actually did a really good job getting Ben to talk about that play and, and, and doing the counterpoint of saying, Hey man, that looks horrible. Okay. Um, and you should have dunked it, but a lot that went into that relationship. There's a lot into um, Ben's shooting issues that we, we didn't really get. Um, a real address on a real answer on, and, and his, or maybe we got an answer and it's not a, it's not a satisfying answer. Right. Um, the answer of why don't you shoot more? Why don't you do more? I mean, like the, I having report on Ben, like he used to shoot more threes. He, he would shoot him more. He would I, shoot I've more told mid-range. you before you yeah. have, you have heard it too. Sixers people would yeah. tell you he takes yeah. him in practice and he shoots and he makes yeah. him at a rate that suggests he could be a 29, 30% three point shooter on wide open threes as a starting point, like as a start, yeah. man, but they wouldn't yeah. take him in games. And they were different and they were, and it was different throughout his career. Right. So it was, um, to me, 
you know, I, I think, um, with, with Ben, like there's still some addressing of that issue of the, there's a, you know, I always saw him as having a bit of a Steve Sachs disease. If you're, if you're over 40, you know what I mean? If you're under 40, you maybe cite like a Rick Ankiel or Chuck Knobloch. Okay. Baseball players who, for whatever reason, they get the yips when they throw the Mackie ball. Mackie Sasser. Okay. Mackie Sasser. Yeah. I'll throw another one go. at you. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's just golfers get this. There's a, it's, it's the yips. I mean, I, part of the reason I was always so drawn to writing about Ben and understanding this is that when I was in college, I got a version of that too. I played college softball. I had trouble throwing the ball short distances. I had a really good arm. I played right field. I could throw the ball home. I could throw the ball to third base. No problem. Throw it on the line. But if you asked me to hit a cutoff or asked me to throw it short to second base, like just from right field to second base, it was harder because I'd start aiming the ball. As soon as you start thinking about something that is usually automated, your muscle memory, it goes to a different part of your brain. And it goes to the part where you're kind of gripping the bat, kind of tight. Um, you can see it when he shoots. I mean, I can just see it, you know, and it's, it's a really hard mental thing to get through. There's um, the inner game of tennis. There's all these sports psychology books that you read. There's sports psychologists that work with people directly. I remember Sue Enquist uh, was the Hall of Fame coach at UCLA. She had a player one of the best pitchers in the country. She got the yip. She couldn't, the people would bunt to her. Nobody could hit her. So they would bunt and then she couldn't feel the ball and throw it. She could feel it. And then she'd get nervous throwing the ball to first. There's a girl who can throw 70 miles an hour underhand, but cannot throw the ball 10 feet to first base. It's a, it's a very strange thing that happens to certain athletes. And Suenko's had this solution for her, which was field the ball, run towards first and throw it on the run because it gets to a different part of your brain. Where I mean, I feel like there's something like that with Ben that happens in games that he will kind of, he will have to address at some point in his career. I, I look forward to seeing him play again. Cause I think he's a phenomenal I can't wait. player. I can't wait. He's going to be and great. He's, he's right. Of course that yep. the defense and the playmaking are underappreciated. I, you know, I voted yep. him all he's NBA right third that. team in 2020 in the bubble season. Uh, he was a defense player of the year. Can he's right about all that. I will say I'm so yep. oh, go ahead. Do you want to finish? You know, there was a lot of debate amongst people of like, what's the way to get the best out of Ben? Do you challenge him to confront whatever's causing the, the yips with the shooting? Or do you build him up and build up his confidence um, and it'll take care of itself? Okay. Like, do you, do you do that by, you know, confront the problem or blinders and pretend there's no problem? And, but, but also celebrate the things he does well. He, if you notice a couple of times, Zach, he talks a lot about, the year that he played with Ursan Ilyasova, J.J. Redick, Marco Bellinelli, that year there was a stretch where Joel Embiid broke his face. Do you remember I that? I was going to say, and, and I was going to say, the most successful part of hit of that year for Ben Simmons was when Joel Embiid was injured. And when Joel Embiid was injured, the team ran around Ben and his skill set. They played the sort of fast break Houston style, you know, shooters, and then Ben would penetrate, and it was. It was a delightful style. It was it was great, and and in a lot of ways, Ben has always cited that as his like. I just need to play like that, right? And everybody else around him has kind of said, you know, you that would be that's the right style for Ben. And his view of it is, if you have a team that plays a style that suits me and my strengths, my weaknesses don't matter as much. 
and we'll see if the Nets are that kind of team. They have the potential to be, although, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the three of them, the big three, uh, split roles. What struck me was there was a certain defensiveness, and there always has been when when Simmons is questioned about the shooting and his game. Some of the defensiveness was like a point-by-point rebuttal of things. Like, I didn't have my phone in my pocket when I got kicked out of practice. He said it was his jersey, not his phone. I haven't done the, the, the zoomed-in analysis of what was actually in his pocket. Some of it was trying to rebut the idea that he told his teammates not to come visit him in Los Angeles. Like, point-by-point. But some of it was, as you, I'm glad you brought up free throws, because I thought in two instances, he, he in being defensive, which is a human reaction we can all relate to, I thought he – I think the three-point shooting is almost becoming a red herring that I don't care about. What I care about is, dude, talk about the game. All you want to talk about is shooting. You shot 34% on free throws in that playoff yeah. run. 34%. You didn't want to get fouled. There was Hacker yeah. Simmons. That's – if that's a permanent thing, that's a much bigger deal than not shooting yeah. three-pointers. Talk about that. That was not That was not yeah. discussed. Um and, and similarly, he said, you know, people nitpick Giannis's free throws too. I'm like, well, yeah, but the difference is Giannis never stopped going to the line. Giannis never stopped barreling over people to try and get uh, to try and get fouled, and he wasn't afraid to to, uh, to take yeah. free throws. Um, and so that that sort of struck me as okay, well, that that'll be interesting. And then the description of the the pass, I thought was just like. You know, I spin, and it was really complicated, and you have to make these snap decisions, and I didn't realize it was Trey Young coming over to help. I kind of felt like – I'm glad that J.J. was like, dude, it just looks bad because I kind of felt like yeah, you're dodging what really happened, which is you've spun and dunked a million times over small guards. You've been, it wasn't a crazy, yeah. unprecedented situation. You're, 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 uh, you're obfuscating what actually happened, which is that you didn't want to get fouled. And so you dumped the ball off to Matisse Thibel. Um, by the way, I was also struck by how excited he is to play for the Nets. He said the coaches, the coaches have been incredible. The coaching staff in the Brooklyn Nets have been incredible. And my first reaction was, oh, oh you mean the coach that Kevin Durant walked in and said, I, that guy's got to be fired or I'm leaving? It's good, that, mm-hmm. it's good that someone's excited about the coaching staff yeah. in Brooklyn. Yeah. Boy, oh boy, Momo. It's going to be uh... – it also reminded me in one of your stories – you yeah. had it. You had. I think it was anonymously sourced. You had something about Simmons was mad that Joel called him out for the pass when he Ben Simmons did not blame Joel for his poor shooting in the 2019 infamous, famous, awesome, amazing, incredible series against the Raptors. And I was like, "Whoa, dude! The only reason you guys were in that series—not the only reason—you were plus a million with Joel Embiid on the floor in that series." And minus a million with him off the floor in that series. I don't really think that Joel deserves any of the blame uh, for that one. So there was also this issue of, um, you know, Ben was in L.A. all summer long and no one came to see him. Right. And then at the end, there was a sort of leaked story or the story that got out there about everyone flying in to go visit him. Right. The other side of that was that respond to people's text messages all summer and he had there was some verse some some somebody had suggested to me that he changed his number he said um he was in the gym he works out with some of the other clutch guys um in the gym with Tyrese Maxey all summer he was in the gym with um a couple other players on the team who were kind of work out in that same gym so it's not like no one saw him clutch guys I feel like we have to now clarify 
people who are represented by Clutch Sports Group, yeah. not people who come through in the clutch right. frequently late in playoff right. games. Right. Clutch with a K. K. Clutch with a K. Um, oh, that's more succinct. That's better. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, there there was this thing of like, I felt this and I can, I can tell you the same thing. Cause as a reporter, I was like, obviously trying to go talk to Ben a lot. Um, and I live 10 minutes from that gym. Okay. And I thought about going to just doorstep him. Um, just face to face at that point. And somebody said to me, like, dude, you can't just do that. You cannot just doorstep him. Um, I'm a doorstep kind of person. I do that, especially with people I have a previous relationship with. Okay. And I don't think it's, I mean, it's better if you can arrange something in advance, but you got to, you know, it's better to talk to them also. Um, but I, I felt like Doc Rivers lives in Malibu. There was this idea of why didn't Doc come by the gym to just see me? But, but like, could he come by if you didn't respond to his text messages? You know, it's not like he didn't reach out. Okay. So there's a sort of, I don't know, like, what should he have done? Should Doc have doorstepped him? Just shown up and, you know, like if, if you, you know, would that have been welcome? Would that have done more harm? You know, there, there was people talking to Ben. It wasn't all those teammates. Um, I know, I, I think Joel had reached out to him a bit. I think there had been other players reached out. Did he change his, was, did he not get back to them because he didn't respond to them? Did he not get back to him because he had changed his number? Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, I can't believe I'm going to make this joke on your podcast. Maybe you'll get it. Um, uh, a lot of mercury retrograde issues, right? Mercury retrograde. We're going to do an astrology analogy. It's just when technology doesn't work, there's just something that's screwy with the technology. Like, is it because the cell phone isn't getting serviced? You just need to reset your cell phone. Um, <laughs> like people in LA, LA make this joke, like something's just not working. Why is it not functioning correctly? Um, like, is, is this a mercury retrograde situation? Like, or is this a, like, you, you didn't respond. So then they can't respond. And then we're not, <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, we you could know. litigate. We could litigate that forever. Part of that podcast was him litigating all of it. But um, yeah. we will look forward, not backward. Right? Like it's it's exciting. If you're oh, a basketball, this though, how much of that is mental health though? Okay, like I just keep coming back to this because I really want to give Ben the benefit of the doubt on this. Of course, I think it was really big of him to say. You know, I was in a dark place. I've been dealing with it. I've been working on it. Like so much of when somebody has whether it's anxiety or depression or bad thoughts or whatever, mental health issues, so much of their behavior before they come out and say, I have mental health issues is misinterpreted by the world at large is, is ascribed to um, personal weakness or personal issues or personal, whatever, like people will put other names on it that oftentimes like they're stubborn. They go, they're this, they're that they're moody. They're this. Well, no, maybe it was just mental health issues. And now that he's worked on it and said it, I mean, there was a lot of people close to Ben who would say to me, like, you know, why don't you want to go back? Why don't you want to go to the team? Why don't you like, and they were encouraging to just say like, Hey, I need, I need some help. I need therapy. I need help. And, um, so now he finally said it, that part of it. And a lot of his behavior in the past, like, like, as you say, he's sort of relitigating a lot of stuff that I can, I can poke holes in, or you can poke holes in. I'm sure his teammates could, or, Doc Rivers, whoever, if you wanted to, but a lot of this might have just been mental health, right? And we need to be sensitive to that. Oh, 
it's, we've all had mental health issues. We all, all yeah. suffer from anxiety and stress yep. and insecurity and imposter syndrome and on and on and on. I've never had to shoot free throws in a 20,000 seat arena um, with people screaming at me. I don't know what that feels like. Um, I know how to, what it feels like to throw a softball in the College World Series and be terrified you're just going to wing it over the stadium. <laughs> okay, or I'm going to wing it and I'm going to blow the game. I know what that's like. It's really intense and I, and, and it, and it, it messes with your whole being. And, and I think that um, Ben has been through a journey. I, he sounds healthy and good. The proof will be on the court, right? It'll be, yeah. you know, he'll just be and judged on the court. Anyone who is a basketball fan and a fan of happy yep. human beings should be rooting for Ben Simmons to stay healthy, to be mentally healthy, to be confident and be Ben Simmons that we have seen in the NBA for all these years now and a, a potentially really good fit with the Brooklyn Nets, a team that I will preview more properly next week as a basketball team. Um, and that has enormous potential. It also has enormous potential to disintegrate uh, rather quickly, but it has <laughs> enormous potential to be a really good team. And, you know, we'll see how Ben looks, but again, basketball fans should be rooting for Ben Simmons. Ramona Shelburne, have a glass of wine or something. Go hug your, go hug those two kids of yours. <laughs> It's been a week, that, hasn't it? Pick that little baby up. Maybe he'll burp or something. Maybe he'll throw up on you. I don't know. He burps. It is the loudest burp. Like you're like that's a man-sized burp. Son. I like He's it. Like three I like months it. old. <laughs> I like it. Uh, thank you for your time, and I, I will see you soon. I'm sure. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Okay, let's change gears. Mr. Bontemps, how are you? Doing well, Zach. How are you, man? I'm hanging in out here in sunny Los Angeles, California. It's time, my friend. It's time. I know, I know you've been eagerly awaiting for it. It's time to talk about a team that I can never just quit, can't get over them, stick by them, endlessly fascinated by them, the Philadelphia 76ers. That's right. They still exist. They still exist. The last time we saw them, Joel Embiid was wearing a face mask after it. Was he wearing a mask in the last game? Was he still wearing the mask? Yeah, he had a, a broken face and a broken thumb. Or an yeah, face, thumb, continuing just an incredible streak of fluke injuries at the exact wrong time. And James yep. Harden uh, was going out with a whimper, 25 points on 9 of 22 shooting in games 5 and 6 combined against the Miami Heat. A series that was completely winnable once Joel Embiid came back for game 3. Harden, I believe, took two shots in the second half of a backs against the wall game six complained after not complained remarked after the game that the ball just never found its way back to him. 
as if we haven't seen that movie a lot of times before. In the offseason, James Harden opted out after missing the deadline to file his opt-in paperwork or some such thing at the trade deadline. Resigned for less money, allowing the Sixers to sign P.J. Tucker to a three-year deal. Daniel House comes over on an cap exception. A really nice trade for DeAnthony Melton. All of a sudden, looking at some two-way, three-and-D-ish type players, the ideal surrounding players for James Harden and Joel Embiid. So I ask you, I ask you, Tim Bontemps, knowing that Joel Embiid was an MVP candidate, knowing that James Harden has allegedly, supposedly taken this offseason very seriously and is going to come back in peak shape, and frankly, frankly, you know, the hamstring thing just dogged him for two straight seasons, and if that's in the past, that's sort of up and down. Like one one day in a playoff series, you'd get old James Harden, and the next day you'd get where did his first step go, James Harden. Like old James Harden, or something very close to it, appeared in some of those playoff games. We'll talk about that. Knowing all that, knowing the depth is beefed up, I ask you, why can't this team win the Eastern Conference next year? Uh, I still don't think their defense is good enough, particularly in the backcourt, but... I do think that they at least have given themselves a puncher's chance, if not better, of winning the East, and I never thought they had a prayer of doing it last year because they had absolutely no defense, really, from the one to four spots. And you look at the way their team is set up now with P.J. Tucker, presuming he could play anywhere near the level he did the last two years, with DeAnthony Melton, as you mentioned, um, you know, with Daniel House, another 3-and-D pickup for them. This is the first time in Joel Embiid's career that he has a team that's built to maximize his skills instead of one that is built that he needs to make up for its deficiencies. And I think that alone, coupled with them adding rebounding toughness, defense, athleticism, all things this team lacked in a pretty big way last season, I think it gives them a chance. And I think they're going to be one of the clear top three in the regular season for me in the East with this Robert Williams injury. It wouldn't shock me if they end up having the best record in the Eastern Conference in the regular season. Yeah, here we but, go. But but, none of that matters if James Harden doesn't play at another level in the playoffs and if Joel Embiid, to your point, can't avoid these fluke injuries that he's had and not have a healthy run through the playoffs. Like, if those two things don't happen, it doesn't really matter what they do in the regular season because, as you said, this is, this is sort of – we're done with the regular season Sixers at this point. It's time for them to – take the next step in the playoffs. All the moves they made this summer were geared towards them being a better team in the playoffs. Now let's see if they can follow through and actually be a better team in the playoffs. Well, and I've been done with regular season James Harden for four years. I've been sure. done with the, oh, 38-17 and 17 at Charlotte in January. Amazing. Yep. The step back three is falling. Amazing. Talk to me when it's chips against the wall time. And I don't want to belabor that point. We've done it. A million times. And Philly's um, that this team is the same boat. It both it it's individually for him, collectively for the Sixers, it's the same thing. This team hasn't got to the conference finals since Allen Iverson got him to the NBA finals. That's the next step for them. Can they break through and get to the conference finals? That that anything short of that is going to be a failure of a season for them. Let's make the case. With Embiid and Harden on the floor, the Sixers were plus seventeen per one hundred possessions. That is ridiculous. Mammoth. Invincible. The Harden-Embiid pick and roll. Regular season. 1.15 points per possession when either one of them shot it out of a pick and roll or one pass away shot it. That was 10th 
among 173 two-man combinations that had some minimum number of pick and rolls that I now no longer remember because I looked it up two days ago, but it was a decent amount. And right. most of the ones above them in the top nine, like, barely made that decent amount. They had a pretty low sample size. Zoom out, include entire possessions, 1.25 points per possession. That's an avalanche. That was eighth among those 173 pairings. And despite all the sort of up-and-down play of Harden in the playoffs all day, is it old James Harden, is it new James Harden, where's the first step? Those numbers got better in the postseason, including in a series against a really stout defense in the Miami Heat and in other two stout defenses, frankly, Toronto and Miami, who tested Embiid in lots of different ways, tested the Harden-Embiid two-man game in a lot of different ways, switches, fronting the post, really sort of forcing the Sixers to go deep into their bag. Uh, we mentioned the offseason additions. The starting five is going to be Tyrese Maxey, maybe the one of the five most important players in the league this year in terms of X-Factors. Harden, Tucker, Tobias Harris, Joel Embiid. It's going to be a great lineup. That lineup's going to kill people. It's going to kill people. You mentioned rebounding, by the way. I'm glad you did. Sneakily awful rebounding team. Particularly, they were dead last in offensive rebounding. P.J. Tucker is going to help their rebounding on both ends. He's a sneaky little freight train coming there to truck people for offensive rebounds. So will Anthony Melton. DeAnthony Melton, you nailed it. You said pace and athleticism. DeAnthony Melton, I'm sorry, producers, I'm just going to swear. DeAnthony Melton is the up guy that this team just didn't have. Come in the game, get in passing lanes, jump around, wreck stuff, make a requisite number of threes. He's everything they need. Just a jolt of can we get the hell moving instead of walking the ball up when Harden is on the floor. And then the bench that we, we talked about, Melton, House, those are maybe my two favorite bench guys. And then the backup big man is, you know, Montrez Harrell. They just signed. They have Paul Reed still. George Niang is there to play the four or the five. I mean, they've put themselves in a position the way they stagger minutes, right? They stagger not only Harden and Embiid, they stagger Harden and Maxi too. Um, that, like, Matisse Thibel, who's become a lightning rod for them, Shake Milton, Furkan Korkmaz, like, those guys don't even have to play unless their skills are absolutely necessary. We can talk about some of the lineup machinations that we can see, some of the options they have. Um, this is, I mean, this is definitely by far their best team since the Jimmy Butler year. And and, and I think I think it's really good. Yeah, I mean, they have a really good team. They have a team, like I said before, that's finally built around Joel that makes sense. There's not any weird pieces that they have to fit. Um, but I think, you know, to me, the thing that really is going to define their year, and you brought it up, is what happens with Tyrese Maxey. And I think some of that is, can Tyrese Maxey make another leap? Because last year he came in the year as a huge question mark as the starting point guard on this team with no Ben Simmons, and he played really well, took a big step forward. But the bottom line is, if I look at this team, and you're again, we're looking at this as championship or bust for them, right? Basically with where things have gone. Ooh, ooh. James, it's a high well, standard. Well, but that's to me, that's what success is. Success is, are they going to be a team that can make the conference finals, can make the finals, can win a championship? That Like, they've made the second round a bunch of times. They've gotten drilled in the first and second round a bunch of times. That's not, they don't get out of the second round again. That's not going to be good enough. They have to get beyond that. So if you make the conference finals, you're a championship contending team. To me, for them to get to that level, they have to figure out a couple things. One is, can Maxi take that jump? And two is, 
what are they going to do when they're playing late in games? Because they have a weird, for as, for as good and deep as their team is, they have a bit of a weird roster in the sense that if you're playing against some of these elite teams, again, can you win late in the playoffs with Tyrese Maxey and James Harden on the court together? Or do you have to have Tyrese Maxey off the court and Anthony Melton there to actually have some stout defenders on the court to guard some of these elite teams? Sort of like what we saw with the Warriors, where Jordan Poole, especially late in the playoffs, there were a lot of times he was not much of a factor because he was a guy that could target at the other end of the court. I think that's going to be one of the big questions of this season is can Maxi and Harden hold up enough defensively? And if not, what are the moves Doc Rivers is going to make to try to counterbalance that? Because I just don't know if those two guys can be the foundation of a team that's going to be good enough to win a title defensively when you're going up against Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and you know some of these other elite teams are going to have to play to get where they want to go. Well, and last year's team had no one to guard those guys. Like Absolutely like the, nobody. The best teams in the league, really Milwaukee and Boston, the best teams in the East, have two of those big wings that can really just kill you as scorers yep. and passers. And the day, real quick, Zach, the day I knew the, the, that I at least personally knew the Sixers didn't have a chance was right after the James Harden trade. The day they introduced him, they played the Celtics right before the All-Star break. I know James Harden didn't play. They lost that game by like 50 points. I don't remember what the score was. They got annihilated, and they could not guard Tatum and Brown. And you just looked at the, to your point, you looked at them on the court. They didn't have the athleticism to keep up with those guys. They had nobody to put on them. Now, if P.J. Tucker is able to play where he did the last couple of years with DeAnthony Melton, with Daniel House, they at least have options to throw at guys like that that they just didn't have before, which I think for all the talk about James Harden, to your point, it's these additions they've made and the way their team finally makes sense. I think that gives them a much more realistic chance of advancing than they really had last year and before that. Well, when they played Miami in the second round, Tobias Harris got the Jimmy Butler assignment for like the first five games of the series. I mean, that tells you all you need to know. Tobias Harris has actually become, I think, an okay defensive player. Yeah. He's I think still better despite some rebounding issues defending up a position at power forward than down yep. a position on like an elite ball handling wing like a Tatum or a Butler or a Brown. But they just didn't have anybody else, particularly once Danny Green went down. And even Danny Green's getting a little long in the yep. tooth, as they say. Yep. Now they have P.J. Tucker. But I agree with you. I think if, if I'm answering my own question, why not Philly? Why not us? Why not Philly? Like, remember the Red Sox? Why not us? Someone's going right. to do it. Why not us? It's number one. I just cannot trust James Harden in a big in an elimination game. He had, in an elimination game with his team facing elimination. He had a really good game to eliminate Toronto in the first round in a series. By the way, that was getting a little little uh, hot around oh, the there collar. Was- there was the when they Sixers. were they were going into Game Six after being up three zero, and there was definitely some. Is this going to be the latest Doc Rivers team collapse? There was there was definitely some noise about that. There's no question. I mean, you've made the point correctly, Zach. James Harden, he's a first bout Hall of Fame player. What's his defining moment in the playoffs? Maybe the Thunder series against the Spurs ten years ago. Pick like one of several two of eleven. Yeah, farts. his defining moments are just Kurt, farts. It, Right, just he has fart it, noise. I should have rephrased that. What's his? What's his? What's his? What's his triumphant moment in the playoffs, or his successful moment in the playoffs? It's all 
you know, one confusing game after another uh, and confusing performance and confounding performance rather than him stepping up in those moments you referenced. I've said it a million times. He's had some great playoff games. Great. Game ones, game twos, his team (laughs) down 3-1, his team up 3-1, down 3-0, up 3-0, whatever it is. When his team gets its back against the wall, something happens to that dude, and it's not good. And we saw it for the – not millions. We saw it for the half-dozen-ish time again against Miami last year. But, again – he had a great game to eliminate Toronto. That's not a backs against the wall game. You got Game Seven coming home. Now that would have been a hysterical atmosphere sure in been. Philadelphia had that sure gone from three zero to Game Seven. Um, he had, and by the way, you go back and watch Games One and Two of that series. He was getting by Gary Trent, like he was hunting Gary Trent on switches, hunting Fred Van Vliet on switches, and not just overpowering those dudes like roasting them off the dribble and getting into the lane. And by the way, for all the hullabaloo about well, James Harden, first step, blah, blah, you look at his at-rim numbers after the Brooklyn trade to Philly when he started, let's let's say, trying a little harder, 34% of his shots came at the rim. That's completely in line with peak MVP James Harden. Completely. This is per cleaning the glass. He hit 61% of those shots. That's way above where he was in Brooklyn when he was pouting his way out of his second team in two years. He was in the low 50s and almost but not quite on par with MVP, James Harden. If you go back and watch game six against Toronto to buttress the the power of the Embiid-Harden pick and roll, as that grew so powerful because Embiid is so good, you know, all this was, well, he's not a roller like Clint Capella. He's not a lob catcher. It didn't matter. If Harden drew two guys for even a split second and got him the ball anywhere inside the foul line, it was over. And you could see teams begin to try to play Harden to score, to take away the pass to Embiid, even if it meant giving Harden a little bit more of a lane to the basket and hoping to challenge him at the last minute. Anything to eliminate the pocket pass because Embiid's just too good. In that game against Toronto, they went one step further. Embiid would set a pick for Harden, and Harden would go around the pick, and nobody would be there. Embiid's guy was told, stay home on Embiid, let Harden drive, someone else would meet him at the rim. You know what he did in that game? He dunked all over Pascal Siakam's face at the rim on those plays. So old James Harden was there. And I'm actually optimistic, Tim. I think he's going to have a good year. I think Rockets' James Harden is gone. I think that guy's gone. I think... Third team All NBA James Harden is 100% in play, and I and I, if he's healthy, if that hamstring is healthy, I think he's going to have a really good year. Yeah, I'm just not sure third team All NBA is good enough. I do think I think it is with them. If, if it's not good enough, Embiid's first team All NBA. Yeah, I know, but I still think they're. I still think while their team makes a lot more sense, and I do think they made strong additions. I do think their defense is going to be a real issue, and. I, I just I think he might need to be a level above that for them to really get where they want to go. I do think your point about him in the pick and roll with Embiid is very astute, and I think when you look at the way he operates, James Harden has never gotten enough cre- credit for his ability as a passer. Everybody thinks of him with the step back three, with drawing the foul shots, with scoring all these points, but he's probably a better passer than he even has been as a scorer. And you watch him run these pick and rolls. I mean, he's diamond people up left and right. It is really fun to watch. And he certainly did that 
in that series with Joel. And yeah, I mean, for what we've you know, for everything we've talked about, when the Sixers are in a, a chips are down situation in the playoffs next year, you better believe that the other team is gonna say, There is no way in hell we're gonna let Joel Embiid have the opportunity to beat us because they know Joel Embiid has a very good chance of beating them. They're gonna say James Harden, the guy who has repeatedly failed to live up to the moment in these situations, we're going to make you be the guy to step up and do that. We'll see if he can do that. I also, watching him up close, I know what the numbers said. I don't think he looked the same way that he did before. I I know the numbers are in line with where he was in Houston. I don't think the burst was ever really there. You mentioned that Toronto series. Fred Van Vliet was playing on half a leg at that point. That's he fair. couldn't really That's move. And Gary Trent is the kind of guy that James Harden can run through. So he had no chance of guarding him as much from a strength standpoint as from a speed standpoint. And James Harden is still really good. Like, if you're one of the 25 best players in the NBA, that's still a really good player. The problem is, when James Harden got introduced last spring, they sat him up on the dais with Joel Embiid, and it was, hey, we got an MVP candidate. We got a top-five player in the league. We got a guy that everybody wants to have on their team. That's not a guy who's maybe a third-team All-NBA guy. Like, he's supposed to be one of the five to ten best players in the NBA. If he's that good, I think the Sixers have a real shot. If he's somewhere from 14 to 25, I think it's going to be a lot harder. Well, that's where he's going to be. He's not going to be a top 10 or 11 player, I don't think, ever again, despite where he finished in our NBA rank, which, again, I don't participate in through laziness. He finished 11th, which was crazy coming off last season. But that's neither here nor there. I agree that's with you. Correct. He's not He's not the same guy. Um He's not the same guy. So, let, again, here are the three reasons to be skeptical of Philly. Number one. Only James three? Har- James Har- <laughs> the three main ones. James Harden know, in, a, in, in backs against the wall games. Hey, look, if the Sixers can go through the whole playoffs, four straight series, without losing three games in a series, they're in business. They'll back backs will never well, be yes, the wall. Yes, they will be in business if they can go through the playoffs without losing three games in a series. They'll be lifting the trophy. So, They'll yes, lift- that would there be There it is. Like, they never have to have a backs, backs against the wall again. Good luck with that. And I think um, the second one is the one you nailed, is we saw it against the Heat, who just went after Maxi and Harden. The longer that series went, the more Miami just said, forget all this cute stuff we run. Just find James and Tyrese, get them switched on to Jimmy or Tyler Hero, and let's like do something and make it happen. And it worked. And I just don't know a way around that other than Maxi has room, I think, to grow into a good defender. I, I think he can be a decent defender, and I don't know if that's going to come soon enough because we know what Harden is, and it's not going to work right. out. They're going to switch everything, one def- as many things with Harden as they can that don't involve Embiid switching and try to protect him like that. We know what he is. Yep. You know, the two of them on the floor, no matter how you construct the lineup, and I and I thought, like, well, what if they put Tucker – at the four and and took out Tobias Harris for defensive purposes as they really need to. So you have House and Tucker together, Melton and Tucker together. Melton's got a 6'8 wingspan. He's a little undersized. But just playing around like Maxi Harden, House, Tucker, Embiid. So you have two guys who are sort of tailor-made to guard the two alpha wings on their team. Well, you still have the two targets to hunt. It doesn't really change the fact that both those guys are on the floor. I think that's the number one deterrent to just anointing them equal to Boston and Milwaukee. And the third thing is, man, I can't believe we're still talking about this. They got James Harden. They staggered minutes. In the playoffs, they began trotting out the kitchen sink lineup. I called it the kitchen sink in my notes, which is when Embiid rests, you throw all your other good players on it on the floor. Maxi, Harden, 
Harris, you're all playing because we cannot surrender. And nothing works. They still crap the bed whenever Embiid is on the bench. Even that kitchen sink group against backup units or what passes for backup units in the playoffs was a minus. In the regular season, they were minus 12 per 100 possessions when Harden played without Embiid. It just can't happen, and we're in year of our basketball gods number like nine of them trying to figure out how to survive without Embiid, and they just haven't been able to do it. Harrell helps, I, I guess. I mean, I, he, helps, when the, he helps during the regular season. He's not helping in the playoffs. We've seen that, that script play out. And look, I do think some of the additions they made will help. I, I think having guys like Melton and House and Tucker, they are deeper. They, they do have more depth. They have more athleticism. I mean, Joel was really – the reason their lineup struggled last year was, to your point, they had nobody who could guard anybody other than Joel. So when Joel was off the court, it was just a layup factory because even if their offense was okay, their perimeter defense was just terrible. They didn't have athleticism to keep up with these teams. They really struggled. And that's where, like I said, the Tyrese Maxey question is just the thing that's going to hang over this team all year. You look at Miami with Tyler Hero. You look at Golden State with Jordan Poole. You look at Philly with Tyrese Maxey. All three of those teams have sort of the same question they have to answer, where those guys are really talented offensive players who are minuses at the defensive end, and if you get into a high-level series, how do you counterbalance that, or do you have to go in another direction? And I think for a team, and Tyrese Maxey made huge strides forward. He's a super, he's a terrific player. He's a great kid. It's an awesome story. You know, it's understandable. Everybody in Philly absolutely loves the kid. But if you're looking again at playing the teams like Boston or Milwaukee or Golden State or name your elite level team in the final couple rounds of the playoffs, that's the kind of question that's going to be asked of you, and you've got to solve it if you're going to advance. And it's not just as simple as, well, those guys are really good. They'll figure it out. Like, like you said, they were just targets last year, and that can't be the case if you're playing in the conference finals and the finals. Part of it is – Internally, I think the belief that we're just going to score a lot of points against everybody, particularly when Embiid and Harden are on the floor together. You can't keep them off the foul line. They're just going to be an elite offense. And I think, actually, their experience in the playoffs last year against, again, the two sort of trickiest, switchiest, most malleable, adaptable defenses maybe in the NBA in terms of the schemes they play, how they can switch things up. I think going through that in year one together – will help them because Harden and Embiid saw every coverage you could possibly have, including tons of switching. And you saw, and I think this will be a challenge for them, you saw them sometimes struggle to get the ball into Embiid when teams would switch and front and dare you to lob it over the top to him. There were some segments of games where they couldn't get the ball to him in the post. I looked this up, Tim, in the last four games of um, the Heat series, Joel Embiid had seven post touches combined. Yep. Seven in four games. He av- That's according to Second Spectrum. He yep. averages normally like 13 per 100 possessions. He had seven in four Total. games. Now, now you watch those games, though, and they found some ways around that stuff. They would just get him the ball at the nail facing up against a smaller guy, and he would bulldoze and dunk or get a switch. Harden would sometimes drive right at those fronts and get around them easily. So they they learned some stuff. But that's that brings me to the next question is, P.J. Tucker is going to have to make a lot of shots this year from the corners because if you put one non-shooter on the court with them, all that fronting, switching, doubling just gets so much easier. 
And that's why he's a big acquisition because he will make enough corner threes probably to make you pay for it. And that's where Thibel was just drawing dead. Playing Thibel became just playing four on five on offense. Nobody was guarding him. They couldn't get the ball to Embiid. And I think between Tucker, House, Melton, and whoever else they play out of their kind of wild cards, I think they have just enough shooting to be an elite offensive team. or to like, no, like, no one is really elite against the best defenses, but to score enough to give yourself a chance to win. Well, look, what if, what if, what's been the Sixers' Achilles heel for all this time? It's that it's always been Joel Embiid having to make up for the deficiencies of the roster around him, right? Because he's such a singular talent. He doesn't have to do that anymore. This is the first time in his career where you can realistically have four guys you have to respect offensively around him, and he could just go to work inside. And that's never been the case. And if you're going to start doubling Joel Embiid, with James Harden, Tyrese Maxey, P.J. Tucker, and Tobias Harris on the court, you're giving up an open three to a really good player. And that is the thing that Joel Embiid has never had in his career. It's Whether it's been Ben Simmons or Matisse Thibel or playing alongside Al Horford, you go down the line. Oh, God. My st- I, just, I just got like threw up a little bit in my mouth about that Sixers team that I was well, really high on with Josh Richardson and Al Horford. It was well, such a disaster. Well, listen, and even even when they had Jimmy, right? Like, for as good as Jimmy is, he's not a guy who's making threes either. Like, he, it's just he's never had. By the way, how did Jimmy come 17th in our NBA rank? How That's, could people well, watch yeah. it? But what that, what that, like, Carl Towns is four spots above Jimmy Butler. What Jimmy Butler has done in the finals and in the conference finals is legit super duper star stuff. And you can tell me, but in the regular season, he doesn't score that much and blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah. Dude, when, what he's done in the biggest stages in the playoffs, Carl Anthony Towns hasn't got it out of the first round. How is he four spots above? I, mean, I love Carl yeah, Towns. It's not my, How is it's Jimmy not, Butler 17th? Yeah, it's on my list. I'll just leave it at that. Um, but. To me, that's that's the thing. Like when you're talking about where the Sixers season is going to go, the reason why I think they might have the best record in the East, part of it is this injury with Robert Williams, which I think is certainly a very big concern for the Celtics on a variety of fronts. For even though they're deep, um, but Joel Embiid, it should be fully optimized to absolutely obliterate the league this year. And I think this team is primed to just be a juggernaut in the regular season. Because to your point. They're going to roll in on a nightly basis in the regular season. They're going to score an absolute metric ton of points, and Joel's going to be unstoppable, and they're going to clean up in the regular season. Anytime Joel isn't playing, you've got Matros Harrell, who's one of the best backup centers in the league. He's going to come in and score. Like They're going to be producing points all the time in the regular season. But I'm not worried about the regular season anymore. I want to see what this team is looking like in the second round against a Milwaukee, against a Boston against you know one of these other elite teams in the East. What are they going to look like in those matchups? Are they going to be able to find the right combinations to advance beyond that? How are they going to answer this Tyrese Maxey question? Is Doc Rivers going to be willing to push the right buttons um, and adjust on the fly? That's the kind of stuff we need to wait to see, and we're not going to see it until May. So until then, it's just a matter of are they going to be healthy. I'm bullish on Maxey. Now, you could you, – he might I think Tyrese Maxey's really good, to be clear. It's just it's an awkward fit with a small backcourt like that in the playoffs. It's just hard. He, 
he also could regress to like 38% on threes or something, but I don't really care about that as long as he's taking them with the same volume and confidence and he's yep. respected at the same threat level, particularly pulling up off the dribble where by the halfway point of last season, defense were like, oh man, we can't go under against this guy anymore. He's just pulling up and hitting threes in our face. Like that seems no question. bad. And, and I also like, like the Harden Maxi two-man game, they barely scratched the surface of that. That's an effective weapon yep. for them given – the, the little guys that will be guarding Maxi and Maxi's speed, even as the ball handler, like Maxi and Harden screening for him was a nice tool. Look, I think when I hear puncher's chance and I use it too, I, what I think when I hear that phrase is like so much has got to go right that it's it's very, very unlikely. Like I think the Lakers have a puncher's chance to, to do some damage oh, I, in the playoffs. I do not. Sure. I you absolutely think, do not. You think the Lakers are, are glass Joe – Fighting Mike Tyson and Mike Tyson's punch out with both of their the hands Lakers. Tied the their Lakers back. stunk last year, and they have basically the same team. Why was Glass Joe still boxing? His record was like zero and ninety-seven. Why? He must have got. He must have got. He must have needed to get the uh, the purses to put food on the table. Um, yeah, they're not. The, I, yeah, I, I think that's very unfair to the Sixers to put them in the same category as the Lakers. I no, think. What, I think they have a puncher's chance to be in the NBA Finals. Uh, not to make the play. I would say the Lakers have a puncher's chance to make the playoffs. I think the Lakers have a puncher's chance to win a round and be frisky in the second I think round. That's but it's, it's a it's absolutely a big, bonkers. But, but that's, big, that's just me. It's a big but look. If, if LeBron and AD are healthy, like I, I just think that you can't. Yeah, they're just basically write them off. they're yeah they're basically playing with me and you, boss. Oh, ooh, Pat Beverly is not going to like to hear that. I mean, Patrick Beverly is one nice addition from last year. He certainly will help. I don't want to talk about the Lakers. Don't want to talk about it. I'm I'm sorry. It's my fault. It's my fault. (laughs) Um, I think puncher's chance in that vernacular sells the Sixers short because I don't think, despite the the, the sort of structural limitations of the two small guards on defense and all that, I think their offense is going to be so good. I think Embiid is so dominant on both ends of the floor and the the offseason acquisitions fit so well. That, yes, they are third for me in the East, behind yep. Milwaukee, who right now would probably be my favorite to win the title, and Boston. After the Robert Williams news, Milwaukee is my pick also. But but I don't think they're that far behind those teams. And Gallinari already tore his ACL. In my head, I'm penciling him as out for the season. I guess we'll see. Yeah. Robert Williams is having knee surgery after playing through knee issues in the playoffs, raising concerns around the league that the Celtics sort of dismissed in terms of long-term concerns. So we'll see. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's, it returns and he's fine. Like Now, things will go wrong for the Sixers too, but I don't think they're, they're – I think they're just a little teensy bit behind those teams. And, and you know – Embiid on Giannis is an interesting option that they have. Embiid can't get out there and guard Tatum and Brown in a Boston series, but he can take some of the Giannis burden in a potential Milwaukee series. Now, we're getting ahead of ourselves, I realize, but I really like this team. And if it weren't, frankly, for the last image we have of James Harden saying – what it, it is of him shooting – it is him disappearing. I mean, he was literally – it was like if he were not on the court. And then saying, well, the ball never found its way back to me. If that were not the last image we had of him, I would be even more optimistic. But I, I have reached the point where I just can't trust him in an elimination game. And so that, by default, they're third in the East. Yeah, that's where I'm at, too. And, and I guess when I say puncher's chance, what I'm referring to is I don't think they're favored to make the conference finals. So by result of that, they're obviously not favored to make the finals or win the title. But I think that is in play. 
And that's what I would say by a puncher's chance. Well, like, it just it depends on the seedings, right? Like you said, it wouldn't surprise you if they won the East in the regular season. I agree with you. It wouldn't surprise me if they won 58 games or 60 games sure. and won the East. In which case, Boston and Milwaukee could be at 2-3 playing each other in the second round. And then, yep. you know, you have a golden ticket to the conference finals. Now, the last time we thought the Sixers had a golden ticket to the conference finals, it ben quite work Simmons, out that way. Ben Simmons passed the Matisse Thibel under the rim, and the whole franchise hasn't been the same since against the Hawks. Maybe, so, maybe they'll we'll play see. the Nets in the second round, and the world will end. Maybe that will be what happens. Look, man, <laughs> it's sept- it's September. It's September. You know who would sign up for Sixers Nets in the second round? Our bosses, the NBA. <laughs> TNT. <laughs> I mean, I'll sign up for that. <laughs> I would, I would sign up for it. I would sign up for it. But if I signed up right now, I have no idea what I'm getting. Who's going to be there? Sure. What's going to happen? Sure. I we're gonna, I'm going to talk about the Nets later with Nick Friedel. I, I can't, I can't do it. It's September 21st. Is it the first day of fall? Is it the 21st or the 20th? It's a beautiful uh, day. I believe it's beautiful it's day. The foliage is happening back on the East Coast. Going to see some foliage. Sure probably is. go, probably go apple picking with the family, which is the stupidest possible activity anybody can do. <laughs> but there's talk that's a of classic Northeast. That's a classic Northeast fall move. Go apple picking. The, the, the dumbest. I've already, I've already told my wife, I whatever day you're we're apple picking, I I feel a little bit sick, and I don't think I can, <laughs> I don't think I can do it. Um, so I'm not letting the specter of that all of that ruined my day. You want to talk? Bonta- you, you want to quickly talk about a, another specter that's not great for an Eastern Conference team? As we've been talking, I'm going to read something to you. Oh boy! What Chicago happened? Bulls guard Lonzo Ball will undergo an arthroscopic debridement of his left knee on Wednesday in L.A. He will be reevaluated in four to six weeks. Well, look, we talked about it last night over dinner. I think I think the Bulls might be screwed. And I and I used a, a, a worse word than that. And screwed not in the oh um, they're going to be bad and and automatically miss the playoffs and all of that, but just screwed in the sense that they put a ton of chips on the table to build this team, including that heist by the Magic and the Vucevic trade. Yep. Uh, they were in first. Like they're gonna they they're gonna. And I said at the time, if you if you tell if you give me now choose between. Choose yes or no on in the entirety of the Levine, DeRozan, Vucevic, Lonzo core. Do the Bulls ever win more than one playoff series in any season? As long as that core is together, I said I'm choosing. I'm choosing no. And I'm if not my sure answer, they'll ever win more than one playoff game. Well, and if the answer is no, then I think you've put a little too much in. And flash forward a year, whatever the hell is happening with Lonzo, this news update just happened. Thank you for paying attention. I was not. It's all um, good. Is a disaster. DeRozan just had the best season he'll ever have in the history of the world, and they won one game in the playoffs because the Bucks. I, I don't think, realized that the playoffs had started it. I really think they thought they were still playing regular season games. Yep. Vucevic is, I think, 31 on an expiring contract and has been a low 30s three-point shooter basically every year of his career except one. Uh, Caruso was great for them. Levine is everything they could have hoped he would be. And He's yet, also, the, by the way, coming off a knee surgery. And just signed a gazillion dollar contract, and the defensive limitations and the playmaking limitations are still there. Everyone in the every team feels disrespected when you say they may not, they, they may be a play in at best. And you look at the East, we just named three teams. I, I don't know what the hell Brooklyn is going to be 
but they're they're going to be something. Miami, the floor is so high for them that they're that they're a dangerous team. Sure. Cleveland, Atlanta, like on and on and on. Well, just and like, we did it. We did this on the Hoop Collective on our East preview this week earlier this week. Just just lay it out. I think three teams are guaranteed to make the playoffs: Philly, Boston, Milwaukee. There's three teams. Then there's six teams after that: Brooklyn, Miami, Atlanta, Toronto, Cleveland, Chicago. Six good to very good teams for five spots. Three of those teams are going to be guaranteed to be in the play-in. One of them's guaranteed to miss the playoffs. Guaranteed. Before you before do anything else. So, yeah. Like, you know what it's be the hard. Most, you know what would be the most fun outcome of all? So, like, Chicago is 100% at risk of being in the play-in tournament and not that far away from, like, fighting to not have home court disadvantage in the play in tournament. Yeah. And I mean right now, right now you got to stack them up ninth if you're just looking at it. Kevin Pelton's preliminary uh win projections have him 10th behind Charlotte. I don't really know how that's possible, but sure. I was surprised by that too, but I would still have him ninth either you know way. What the, mo- the most fun outcome of all this would be if one or of Detroit or Orlando just comes out like like a house of fire and is like 10 and 7. Which for them is a house of fire or house yes. on fire or whatever the hell the saying is. My money's and on Hank- Detroit for that. Cade takes a jump. We were talking about that at dinner. Cade takes a jump. Detroit could b- b- jump up. I don't think it's going to happen, but I can see ju- it. And just makes it fun. Just makes it like, oh, my God, are they going to make the play-in tournament? Um, yeah. Nobody Bulls- thought Cleveland was going to be in there last year. Look what they did. The Bulls are the Bulls are uh, in, in, not, in not awesome shape. That is – that's bad news. And, and, and look – it, it's it stinks because they were call it fool's gold or what but whatever but they were a good team for the first 40 games of and last a fun season. and a fun story too and Lonzo was a big part of it he was shooting the million threes shooting 40 percent the hit ahead passes to Levine and etc were as advertised the defense with him and Caruso just bank robbers out there taking like it worked it worked yep. It, it, I don't think it was going to work to that tune all season, but they had built something that was real and fun, and you know, and and now it's it's all at risk. But anyway, um, that is that is. Thank you for alerting me to that, and I'm glad we hit it. And uh, boy, oh boy, the NBA never stops, Mr. Bontemps. No, sir. I'll see you around the block. It was great seeing you this week in LA. I will see you all over the Eastern Conference Amtrak corridor yes, in the next will. couple of months, my friend. Good talking to you, man. Thanks for having me. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.